You're listening to episode 18 of the Secret Origins Podcast. That's right, this is episode 18 because it covers issue 18. And to number the episodes any other way would be too confusing for some listeners, so saith the irredeemable shag. Even though the actual episode numbers don't matter, because every episode is named after the issue covered in that episode. But whatever. This episode features the stories of the Creeper and the original Green Lantern. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm happy to welcome my first guest today, back by popular demand, it's Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary. Welcome back to the show, Ange. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I actually really love this story, so um, I'm really happy to be doing this one. No, absolutely. I'm I'm really excited to have you back. Thank you for doing this. Uh, I'm excited to talk about The Creeper, but before we get there, a little explanation if this is your first time listening to the show. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And this show has covered more than 30 stories so far. But this one that Ange and I are doing is a first for the series. We've reviewed characters I love, such as Batman, Superman, Hawkman, characters I'm frankly indifferent toward, like Fury, Halo, and Dollman. And now, for the first time, we talk about a character I actively dislike. The Creeper. So, it's on you, Ange. First of all, how did you first discover the character? So this is good because this is one of these characters that I like, and I don't know if I can actually explain why I like him. (laughs) So it's actually quite good for me to be doing this show. So I completely remember the first time that I uh, first read about the Creeper, and it was in The Secret Society of Supervillains number 9, an issue that I still have. And it had one of those great covers where there's like, heroes on the left and villains on the right staring each other down like they're going to fight. But in the hero side is the trickster and in the villain side is the creeper. And there's something on the front that says, why is the world's weirdest hero the creeper with the supervillains? And I was like, man, look at this guy. He's got a red shag rug and green hair and he's supposed to be a hero and he's fighting with the villains. And so that was my first exposure and then I've kind of tried to follow him everywhere he's been ever since, hoping I'm going to find an incarnation that, you know, is worthy of me being such a big fan of this. And <laughs> to be honest with you, I've kind of yet to find one that really captures everything that I'm looking for. I feel the same, except I don't really, I don't feel the emotional pull to this character. I just, 
I've never seen a version of the of the creeper that I really like. Um, and and more than that, I just I look at him and he's a mess. He's all these weird Steve Ditko ideas that feel like he's borrowing from other ideas and concepts, and they don't really work. And and he's also one of these characters that I don't think works when anybody other than Steve Ditko writes or draws him. And I'm also not in love with the way that he writes or draws him, so I just I I, I don't know I can't I, yeah. I can't find that inroad to this character. Um, it, he's kind of like a contradiction. So when you read the Steve Ditko stuff, he's this purely right wing reporter who is trying to break down crime and fight the communists. I mean, that's literally the story from Showcase. Uh-huh. Um, but then when he becomes the creeper, he becomes like this agent of chaos, crazy guy yep. laughing hysterically. So it's like, okay, secret identity is right wing and then, or, you know, very conservative. And then superhero identity is this crazy guy. And it's sort of hard to meld those. Um, uh, but I think there's just something like he looks so crazy and he laughs crazy and he's kind of got like agility and some speed and some endurance that I've always kind of liked the character of it, but, um, uh, or his heroics, but it's never really meshed well as an overall idea. Uh, one of the things that really I love about this version of the mm-hmm. creeper in this secret origin story is that this one makes the most sense overall, at least to me, which is why I was hoping that something more would come out of this story. And it, it just never really seemed to. I think I agree that this one, of all the origins, this one probably makes the most sense. Probably. Probably. I think after we discuss the story, I'll touch on some of my other specific qualms with the character. But and you can yeah. you can argue for it, and we'll we'll see how this plays out. But um, before we get into this origin story, let's uh, let's cover his publication history a little bit. And if I forget anything, feel free to add in or correct me. The Creeper first appeared in Showcase issue 73, which had a March 1968 cover date. The character, whose civilian identity is called Jack Ryder, was the creation of legendary comic book artist Steve Ditko. Yes, Steve Ditko, the man who redesigned Jack Kirby's bulky Mark I Iron Man armor into the more sleek and classical red and gold version we love today. I think that's the only thing Steve Ditko is really known for. Uh, After the initial appearance in Showcase, Ditko plotted and illustrated the Creeper's adventures in a six-issue limited series called Beware the Creeper, which was scripted by Denny O'Neill. In the 70s, the Creeper appeared sporadically in issues of Detective Comics, First Issue Special, and Super Team Family, as well as making somewhat more regular turns in Adventure Comics, Secret Society of Supervillains, as Ange just said, and World's Finest Comics. In the early 80s, he had a short stint as a backup feature in The Flash and finished the pre-crisis on Infinite Earth's era with guest appearances in everything from Action Comics to Blue Devil to Infinity Incorporated to Swamp Thing. After the crisis, Creeper hooked up with the Giffen de Mateus Justice League for a couple months. In the late 90s, Creeper got a self-titled series by Len Kaminsky and Sean Martinborough. Before Flashpoint and the New 52, Creeper became a member of The Outsiders. And that's pretty much what I got. Did I miss anything? No, you know, I mean, uh, he had a six-issue miniseries uh, that Steve Niles wrote uh, in sort of the post-Infinity, uh, 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 Infinite Crisis, Brave New World, hmm. and uh, but uh, and then a Vertigo series, I'm sorry. There was a take on the Creeper that was set in, like, early 1920s, 1930s France, with a female creeper, um, but not this classic version. 
I do not remember ever hearing about that one. Oh, we can talk about it uh, later on. It's actually, that was the uh, Vertigo one? It's Vertigo, yeah. It's written by Jason Hall with art by Cliff Chang, uh, and it's an interesting story. I'd be interested in it for the Cliff Chang art. For Yeah, one beautiful stuff. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, listeners. Uh, we're going to play a promo for one of our podcast friends. But when we come back, the origin of the Creeper. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see you. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Origins issue 18 was cover dated September 1987, but would have hit the shelves on June 9th that year. The cover, spotlighting Creeper and the original Green Lantern Alan Scott, was drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. What do you think of this cover? You know, I'm a intermediate fan of Bill Sienkiewicz. I'm not a huge fan, but it's not as if I don't like his work. I actually like this cover a lot because um, it, there's a dynamic feel towards it. So I think a lot of times in Secret Origin, it was still shots or characters and posters or a split down the middle. This is clearly these two characters engaging each other with, uh, it looks like Green Lantern's either making a cage or a big playground structure mm-hmm. for the creeper to be sort of swinging around on. And so I actually liked that this was they were interacting with each other in a way that felt as though it was kinetic. You know, there was more action going on here than I'm used to seeing on Secret Origins. And there's this weird kind of layering effect to this cover that, like, the Creeper's body, his arms and legs seem to be in front of Alan Scott, but Alan's hand is coming forward and creating the bar that Creeper's swinging from. So it's like this weird, like, which one of these characters is in front of the other? There's this weird, it's like a Penrose stairs thing, where it just keeps, (laughs) like, circling, like, infinitely. Like, you don't know, like, which, where this thing is supposed to lead. 
I think it's a little bit too crowded with all of the uh, the green lines from Green Lantern, like the the cage or the playground, whatever he's designing. I think there's a bit too much of that. Um, but other than that, it's good. It's not my favorite Sienkiewicz piece, but it's not bad. Yeah, I'll agree with you. There are a lot of these green lines, and there doesn't seem to be. It's not a perfect cube in any way, so there's all mm-hmm. these odd angles of all of those lines. That does yeah. kind of make it a little bit almost confusing to look at, but I actually like it a lot. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of the Creeper? I am. The story is called Before and After Science, plotted with words by Andy Helfer, Keith Giffen uh, co-plotting with pencils, Rick Bryant inks, John Costanza on letters, Carl Gafford on colors, and Greg Wiseman uh, as the editor. The opening page has Jack Ryder, rather small, walking towards the reader with a very large, sort of gangly-appearing shadow of the creeper. And then in big letters it says, Who is he? Where did he come from? How did he come to be? These questions have haunted comic fans and creators alike for more than a decade. Now the truth can be told. Now we can finally reveal the secret origin of the Creeper. So the next page, we're in the office of two mobsters named Manny and Moe, who are complaining about a reporter named Jack Ryder. They call him a creep reporter and say that his column for the Herald Examiner, which is titled The Hot Seat, has been covering their illegal operations, and they really wish that Jack Ryder was sort of out of their hair. He has been covering some of their uh, nefarious operations with funeral parlors and things like that. But so far, Jack Ryder has not uncovered their importing business, they call it. It turns out that Jack Ryder has bugged their office and hears all of this discussion. He also hears that the two mobsters are throwing a huge Halloween party that night, and figuring that this is a big chance to break the biggest story of his career, Ryder decides to sneak in. That night, Ryder uses a servant's entrance to get into the party, but is soon discovered and knocked out. When he awakens, Ryder is told by Manny and Moe that they knew that their office was bugged and knew that Ryder would show up at this party. They have pumped him full of the drug that they are importing, a drug that in low doses is a hallucinogen, but in high doses causes psychosis. And then to further humiliate him... They throw the intoxicated rider out into the crowd, dressed in the creeper costume. They call him the Dancing Creep and tell the crowd to turn on him. And, this being a Halloween party filled with mobsters, they're more than happy to oblige and beat him to a pulp. Ryder is then brought out to the estate's grounds and told that he can make a run for his life, but after getting a five-second head start, he is shot in the back by one of Manny's trigger men and left for dead. Ryder later awakens to find himself out of the costume, but completely healed. He is in the carriage house of the mansion, and inside this place is scientist Dr. Emile Yatz. Yatz tells Ryder that he is interested in inorganic matter transference, but he ran out of funds for his experiments. He was forced to turn to Manny and Moe for money, and he completed his research, creating a small two-piece device that when the pieces are placed together, would transfer any non-organic matter within the vicinity for another set of inorganic matter. Manny and Moe were going to use this to aid in their crime, teleporting ill-gotten gains away, as well as changing the clothes and the appearance of the crooks who were using the device. Yats, however, couldn't bear to have his device used in that way, so he implanted the two pieces into Ryder. The energy of the device, which was 
I guess, surgically placed within Jack Ryder healed his wounds. But unfortunately, the surgery had to be done hastily to save Ryder's life. So this was done while he was in the Creeper costume and while all of those drugs were coursing through Ryder's veins. Since both of these things are inorganic, the device most likely imprinted on both of them. The gunman breaks into the carriage to finish the job and accidentally kills Yats. Ryder desperately touches his wrist, putting the pieces of the transfer device together, and becomes the creeper again. Laughing hysterically and pumped full of those drugs, and now super strong, super durable, and agile, the creeper enters the party and tears through the crowd, bashing the attendees. He then breaks Moe's back and snaps Manny's neck, all while laughing maniacally. The next morning, the paper has a story written by Ryder that covers the murders at the party, but Ryder doesn't remember writing the story. He awoke to find himself at his desk with no recollection of what happened after he put the two pieces of the device together. The story ends with a splash page of the Creeper, and it says, In the days and months that followed, Jack Ryder will gradually, torturously learn the secret of his other self, a self hidden within the subatomic matrix of a never-to-be-duplicated device, a self that emerges on demand, bringing with it the effects of a strange mixture of drugs and chemicals that can never be erased, a self that lives in a twisted twilight world between sanity and psychosis, a self that stalks without fear of injury to himself or to those he pursues, a self that mysteriously recedes whenever the danger is averted, a self that can only be called the Creeper. All right. Thank you very much. Why do you think that this origin is better than the previous versions of his origin? Well, you know, when you look at the original one with Steve Ditko, the first thing that I think stands out is, again, that there's this almost uh, truly disparate nature between the Jack Ryder personality and the Creeper personality, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to me that Jack Ryder, this hardcore, you know, conservative guy, would laugh hysterically and make jokes as he's beating people up. And so in this version, you have a reason for it. He's completely pumped up on like an LSD type drug Mm -hmm. such that he's psychotic. And, you know, so I guess I'm saying that I like a superhero that when he's a hero, he's like pumped up on drugs. Uh, (laughs) I guess that's what I'm saying. But, you know, it makes the most sense to me in terms of what this character is. You're a doctor. How are you treating your patients right now? (laughs) I know, right? You know, uh, I'm part of the Just Say No generation, you know, so uh, so it's just interesting to read for me. But, you know, all of this time when I see the Creeper and I love the fact he laughs and the words ha 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 are in huge letters in the background of all of the panels and comics he's in. And it's like, boy, it just doesn't work with that character. And for some, I thought that this one worked the best. Now, I also have to say, you know, when you look at the um, at the Ditko one, he goes to that party in costume. He goes to a costume store and says, you know, what can you give me? And the costume store guy is like, I only have scraps and odds and ends in this box. And so it becomes this, you know, red shag rug, yellow bodysuit. You know, in this, at least, you know, the mobsters are like, we're trying to make a a mockery of him. And so we're going to put him in something that's completely foolish. Um, And then again, to go back to the Ditko one, Yats, right? In, In that story has two things. He's got this matter transference device, but he also has like a super soldier serum. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I've always had problems like how smart is this guy that he's like not only doing like quantum physics, but also like biological serums. So 
this you know story is like all it is is that thing. It has enough energy from its Prometheum power source to to heal him. So I think it kind of makes the most sense overall for this character. He can be a little bit straight laced as a reporter, but now we know why he's nuts when he's the creeper. Mm-hmm. And I, I jokingly refer to Iron Man as Ditko's greatest creation when I was talking about the publication history. But I actually I made that reference because. I feel like the Ditko version borrows a lot from the origin of Tony Stark and Iron Man and how he's wounded um, in that story. Jack Ryder is stabbed. He's bleeding to death. Um, he meets this Dr. Yatz, whereas Tony Stark was wounded and he meets Yinsen. And there's this whole transfer of this of this sort of medical procedure that saves his life and also like gives him this kind of super strength. But the mentor figure is also killed. Yinsen dies. Dr. Yatz dies. Um, you can also say that's similar to the Captain America origin. Um, so I felt like he, he was sort of, he was lifting a lot from that story. It also struck me like that Steve Ditko was trying to create something visually similar to Spider-Man. You know, Ditko, Ditko always made Spider-Man posed in these really weird kind of gangly, inhuman poses and postures. Um, and I, I think it was really John Romita Sr. when he started working on uh, Spider-Man that it really took on more of that classical, more of that heroic look. Uh, Ditko really made Spider-Man look weird for those first two years or so. And I think that's what he's trying to bring into the Creeper, like with this, the weird, the, the shag, the, the look and everything that's coming over him. It's, it, there's nothing human about his shape. Even when you look at the way Giffen approaches him on the first page and the last page, the yeah. silhouette, there's nothing human or natural about the silhouette. It looks like a bad, like a marionette puppet that's just like come to life and gone crazy. No, it, it's um, so funny that you say that because that's exactly the feeling that I got. Like this is somebody like who's had, on strings, you know, mm-hmm. that exactly mm-hmm. is that everything's at weird angles. Um almost like a marionette being sort of, uh, uh, that's exactly the image that I had in my head. And, and for that same reason, I think it's, it's sort of like how like George Perez would design costumes that only he could draw. Um, yeah. This strikes me like it's, it's a character that I think only a few artists can really make the creeper look good. And I think Ditko is one. I actually think Keith Giffen is another one. I think he was the only logical choice for this origin. Um, and the third one I think could do it, even though I don't know if he ever has, Chris Bacalo. Yeah, um, yeah. Even though he hardly ever did any DC work, um, except for Vertigo stuff. But I think he could actually do a really good Creeper. But uh, I don't know. Like uh, The design, the green hair combined with the, the uh, ha-ha-ha and the laugh track all around him, it's so you, – you can't not think of the Joker a little bit. But also when the Joker laughs, he's laughing because he's told a joke, even if it's only funny to him. Like when I was reading some of the the Creeper strips in World's Finest that Steve Ditko was writing and drawing, he wasn't making jokes. He was saying matter-of-fact things like, I'm going to walk over to the deli and get a sandwich. Ha 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 ha. And like laughing like a madman. It's like, okay, that's more annoying than it is you know, disarming or, or distracting. Yeah, you know, in that first issue of Showcase, he just does it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he, uh, he he laughs in one panel, and then he's like, oh, that seems to really get to them when I laugh, so I'll laugh more. Um, right, it seems and, like a conscious decision, like it's an act he's putting on in the old ones. And that's exactly. why I think I agree with you that on this one, the changes that Helfer and Giffen made 
the fact that it is a split personality, that he doesn't control it, that it, it, he changes into another being who's loaded on like a, a, a cocaine crystal meth LSD cocktail or something <laughs> like the way, yeah, yeah. the way they describe these drugs that are pumping through him. Yeah, I, I definitely think the changes that are made for this one make it more unique and make it a little bit more logical. When you read other things that he's been in, like even that Secret Society of Supervillains or uh, like DC Comics Presents or Brave and Bold, he's just like one of the many, many superheroes who has a little bit of extra agility and a little bit of extra strength, and a little bit of extra endurance. And if he's not drawn completely strange, then you're looking at it and you're like, why am I reading this guy? You know what I mean? Like they could have inserted almost any other character into this superpowered set Mm -hmm. um so if you don't have that weird feel to him Mm -hmm. then they're just there's almost like a disconnect he looks like a fool and uh, he isn't adding much to the story from from a power set or a personality set and that's why you know you always say at the beginning of these episodes it's either you know uh it could be a retelling or a reimagining of somebody's origin and i was like this was the first reimagining that i thought improved on the original agreed and Maybe this is one of those characters who I would like better if he was in his own little pocket universe. If this guy, if the Creeper wasn't part of the greater DC universe. Um, Yeah. Because I didn't like him in Justice League when they threw him with the proto-Justice League International. Um, I I felt like he was, you know, it sort of reminded me, like a a before Deadpool. Yeah. but he was sort of – he came in, he, he told the jokes, he laughed to himself, and everybody was annoyed by him. But Batman tolerated him because he had a little bit of use. But he just annoyed me in those stories. Like, I don't know. So I think he could work in a comic like this where he's the only one and he's not, he's not part of Superman's world. Um, he's not part of the Justice League's world. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe there is a place for him. Yeah, you know, I, I mean if you read this story – you know, they introduced the secretary he has in the office and mm-hmm. these uh, and these mobsters. And, you know, when this was done, I was like, boy, if this was a way that they were planning to start a series or a mini series, you know, I think that this would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. It would be hard for him to work in Gotham or to be part of that, because I think that it's not easy for him to interact with those guys. Actually, let's talk about Jack Ryder, because this does change who he is a little bit before he becomes the creeper. <laughs> Um, in the in the original story, he had been a TV talk show host, and then at one point he got fired from that, and he was just sort of a like a troubleshooter for the network for the studio or something. And this one, they make him more of a kind of hard boiled investigative journalist. Yeah, and you I, know, in in that Ditko version, you know, you read the opening scene where there's like a psychiatrist on the panel who's saying, like, some colors are too violent for young minds, and he's laughing at him, and he gets fired because of that. And when you read that, it's almost like, oh, I can see the uh, the characters from the Fountainhead who he's, you know, <laughs> patterning all of these people about, oh, look, you know, that's that guy too, Ian, you know? So, um, and then you're right, he gets fired, and he gets approached by, like, the television channel's security force, where they're like, oh, sometimes we do some of the under uh, undercover investigations for the, the channel, and you seem like you're the type of person who would do that and maybe, you know, you know, bust your knuckles uh, up a little bit if you had to. And so that's when he gets involved with that. Which, trying to rationalize a TV personality 
becoming like a like a a hardened security enforcer for a studio. Yeah, it's it's all very strange, and even you know that um, that story. I, I think it opens up with one of the prior you know security uh, guys for the television uh, channel you know, getting killed or mm-hmm. getting like maimed by that version of the mobsters that we had in this story. Yeah. Um, but here you're, you're right. He's now like, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm writing for a paper and I'm trying to get my big break and I'm not a big personality like that. And I think we've seen versions of him have a television personality in the animated uh, stuff a little bit. I think that's one element that I might like more just because it's more unique. I mean, we see a lot of heroes who are like journalists or investigative types in their day jobs too. And the idea that he would be a television personality, that he would be a TV talk show host and even kind of like a a smarmy disreputable one even would be a funny kind of interesting take and kind of play into the, the double personality nature of the character. Yeah, Yeah. And you know, you can imagine that, Nobody would think if he was a Fox News type person mm-hmm. that he would ever dress up with a shag rug cape, right? So it would almost be like another way that, oh, my identity is safe because if I'm for, you know, the traditional values, I would never be in this, you know, yellow suit. Well, I could see Glenn Beck taking a lot of drugs and dressing up like this. So, <laughs> But for the most part, I, I see your point. Um, All right, a few other notes about this. The way Giffen draws Dr. Yats, Uh to me, when I saw him, I was like, that looks like the actor Carl Malden towards the end of his life. Like, not during the streets of San Francisco days, but, like, towards the end, like, in the, like, in the 2000s. Like, something about his, like, the shape of his nose and his eyes, I think. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally see that now that you mention it. I had to flip to the page. <laughs> yeah. I guess the shape of his head is a bit more oval. Like Carl Malton had a pretty circular box-like face, but yeah, yeah, just something about those features. I love the gangland execution part of the story. Um, and this takes me back to Spectre. And there's just there's something about that element of a character's origin of seeing the hero actually murdered yeah, and then resurrected through some supernatural or scientific means. Um, but in this case, yeah, he's he's drugged up by the guys he's trying to catch. He's thrown into this party where the the party goers just beat the life out of him because they think he's uh, he, they think he's a monster, and they're all on drugs. So he, he's full of drugs. He's concussed, probably bleeding internally, and a, a gunman just walks him out into the woods and puts bullets in his back and yeah. leaves him there to die. And I was like. Holy crap! And then yeah. he gets, and then he gets a second chance at life. You know the, um, that whole thing. I mean, uh, I can talk a little bit about the art. You know, like this is Giffen when he's starting the nine-panel look, mm-hmm. which I think works very, very well. And that whole series, as you say, you know, you get some panels that are from his rider's viewpoint with him hopped up on drugs. So they're mm-hmm. all weird, bird's-eye view, strange angles. Everything's distorted, which mm-hmm. I think adds. And then, you know, when he gets shot, you get sort of the same three panels in a row showing, like, he's basically dead. He's not moving. We're seeing right. him lying there, right. which I thought really added a lot because you're saying, you know, this is really weird. You know, I'm in the middle of the story and he's dead. So I thought that whole thing did play out very well. Yeah, you see the silhouette of the gunman 
and then a blank space, and then the silhouette of Doctor Yats who finds yeah. that body. So it's a it's a cool little progression. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I liked about this was that you never really get a great view of the creeper throughout this whole story. Like you see him from behind and mm-hmm. maybe you see an extreme close up of his face. Like maybe you see his eyes and his nose, or maybe you just see his fist, but you never get like, Oh boy, there's the who's who picture of him, which I think kind of makes the story a little bit more fascinating to me. Like, Oh, we never really get to see what this guy looks like. We don't have a great sense of him until that last panel. Mm-hmm. And even then, there's a lot of shadow. There's a lot of shadow. And so you're like, this is a creature of the night that maybe is moving so fast and darting in and out of this fight that we're only supposed to see glimpses of him. Uh, and he's really supposed to be otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, that So I thought that really worked well in terms of um, this whole story. You know, this is supposed to be the spotlight on the creeper, and you never see him until the last page. Yeah, yeah. There's something... There's, it's part demonic, part alien. It just doesn't work. It's just, it, but but it, I get why that should work. I get why that's attractive. Why that's it's sort of, it just it plays against the understanding what you're what you're expecting from a sort of superhero with a clean uniform and just a natural symmetrical static look. And this character doesn't conform to those. He's just so weird. It's like the, the shag thing that kind of like moves like hair or like tentacles. Um, it's creepy is the word for it. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, and I think different people, like there are some people that do, they you know make it look like it's a punk of shag rug. Mm. But in this... It almost looks like fire enveloping right, right. that last panel, which I think just makes, you know, that is such a great shot of, you know, and then that whole thing that I read, you know, where it's like, oh, this is a really a crazy force that comes out every so often when it needs to, mm-hmm. just says, this is going to be very different from those creeper stories, stories that we've read in the past of right. just some guy who wants to be a crime fighter. Like, this guy is uh, almost a force of nature. I think the worst I've ever seen it, like there, I've seen some artists do renditions of the creeper where it looks like a feather boa wrapped around his neck. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, that looks stupid. If you're, yeah. if you're going to do it, you have to commit to it and you have to make it look, yeah, like you, you said, like it looks like he's on fire in this lab, like this silhouette, these, oh, it's so weird. Yeah. Um, other people make it look almost like a big furry vest, like people wore mm-hmm. in like the early seventies, where you're like, "Oh my god, that's hideous." <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, so far, there have been three secret origin stories that were set in or around costume parties. That seems to be a thing yeah. in a lot of hero origins. Yeah, I um, I always like when that happens in stories. You know, it's funny. One of the books that I recently bought at a convention was one that I had as a kid where Iris Allen uh, gets killed. And that happens at a costume party. She goes as Batgirl and Barry is like, I, do, I forgot to get a costume. And she goes, you know, go as the Flash. So he, he goes as the Flash. And so <laughs> it's always interesting when you get those because, you know, and of course, Batgirl's origin story was at a costume party, right? Yeah. Uh, when Killamoth showed up, so. Um, so I always like those when people are like, oh, they're, they are in costume, but they're also in costume, you know? So mm-hmm. it was, well, it's, it's a great excuse for why they would dress in some weird 
exotic scheme. Like that's that's how Crimson Avenger started. That's how Oh, Our Man. Yeah, Our Man yeah. was the other one too. Yeah, and it's a good reason because then when you get to somebody like uh the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, I was like, Okay, they just went home and just happened to find outfits like these in their <laughs> wardrobe. Like, man, okay, that that's a scene where okay, maybe it would have been better if they went to a costume party. Oh, except damn, it takes place on the fourth of July. Right. So. You know, and this is, you know, if you look at the people that Giffen has at this party, like, no wonder he's gone mad on these drugs. There's a guy dressed up as an executioner. There's a guy in what looks to be like a KKK costume. Mm-hmm. The main bad guy is a devil. Like, if you were on drugs and you saw these people, you'd be like, I'm in hell. There's right. no doubt about it. And the other bad guy, the other gangster, the fat one, is dressed like Superman. Yeah. <laughs> so there's... At one point, the creeper punches out somebody who looks like Captain America. There, yeah. There's a weird – there's somebody dressed similar to Wonder Wonder Woman, except she's got this weird green mask on. It's Yeah, and there's a bunch of, like, creepy clowns and that sort of yeah. stuff. There's enough creepy clowns there to, to make me scared. Now, if Roy Thomas had been writing this issue, all of the people in this costume party would have been direct references to something. <laughs> Because that's, yeah. what, that's what we have seen in the other costume party uh, uh, stories. Yeah. So. That's a step. Uh, any other notes about this story specifically? You already talked about how the uh, Yats getting killed was similar to sort of Captain America. That's why there's no other super serum or no other costume. So I think that was about it. I've read The Creeper in Justice League, and I didn't like him there. I read him in World's Finest, which was mostly by Steve Ditko, and I didn't like him there. This is the best Creeper story that I've read, which is good for it, but it's still not making me want to read more of this guy. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that, because here I am, I'm coming out, and I'm like, hey, I'm a fan of the Creeper, I should be doing this story. And then I look at what I have, and it's like, okay, I read that first issue special story, and that was awful. Like, no wonder he didn't get a story uh, uh, comic based upon that uh, (laughs) sort of showcasing of him. And then, like, the Steve Niles miniseries that came out, I only got the first two issues out of six. And even the stuff that you said that you've read that I've read, yeah, like, there's nothing about it that makes me say, this is a character that the way it's written... I want to keep reading. So I just keep hoping it's, uh, you know, that I'm going to eventually come upon one that's going to, you know, match whatever interest I'm attracted to this or, or I like this character so much. Um, I will say that Vertigo miniseries was set in like, uh, you know, post-World War One France. It had a lot to do with like the different art movements that were going on there. It was a murder mystery. It was a female person who put on uh, a costume similar to the Creeper and was trying to fight you know, social norms there. There was murder mystery involved. And again, Cliff Chang art. There's no super serum there. There's no, uh, you know, matter transference device there. Um, but if you want to kind of read an Elseworlds uh, version of the character, that's actually a story that I very much enjoyed. The different premise, the different time and setting is certainly interesting. And I love me some Cliff Chang. So I might have to look out for that one. Yeah, I think it even came out in a trade, and I met Cliff Chang at some convention once, and I was like, are you ever going to do a sequel? And he said both he and Hall, who wrote it, would love to do one, but uh, if it hasn't happened by now, that was a dozen years ago. Luke Giaconetti is a big fan of The Outsiders, of course, and I know that The Creeper was part of The Outsiders team when Batman was supposedly dead around the post-Final Crisis era. So maybe, maybe I'll ask Luke... Like, what purpose the Creeper served with that team? 
can I tell you that there was a time that uh, Dan Didio was writing these mm-hmm. and um, I actually collected it for a short period of time because they were bringing the Eradicator back, mm-hmm. and I kind of wanted to keep track of what's going on. And that creeper, I think, was a true demon, had no science background at all. And I think one of the first stories I read with like Philip Tan art was a succubus trying to mate with the creeper to make an army of creepers. <laughs> and I was like, man, nope, this isn't the creeper that I want to read either. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, I feel for you because there are characters that I like despite not having a whole lot of reason to. Yeah, you know, I mean, the guys on Fire and Water make fun of me. Like, what are the characters that I've championed over on the Who's Who podcast? Hyathis, <laughs> you know, Reactron, and the Manhawks. And, like... Who did I defend the most in, on your podcast and comments? The Golden Age Fury. And <laughs> these are like crazy characters. And even the Golden Age Fury, I'm like, you know, I haven't even read many stories that she's in. But I don't know. There's something about it that I like. I kind of feel like it's just that sort of, you know, visceral response to this character that just makes me kind of you know, keep hoping that one day I'll get um, the right title for him. Mm-hmm. In terms of Golden Age Fury, I think... Everybody's comments, including yours and including Diablo's, Frank's, made me think that there is something inherent to that character that might be really worthwhile. I just, you, I have zero interest in ever reading Young All Stars, so I'm not going to learn about that character. You know, it just look at the covers of the first six issues of Young All Stars, and you're like, wow. And then you read the stories, and you're like, yeah, just not quite enough. Yeah. Um. But as for your other preferences, hey, Reactron is going to be a TV star. Yeah, it's completely crazy for me to think that. And, you know, I've had so much fun with it. I've been putting up, like, different, you know, artists' versions of Mm -hmm. Reactron on Twitter, and and I I just can't wait. I mean, that's going to be – I told Shag and Rob, I'm like, when he's on television, just expect there's going to be a million tweets from me. I like (laughs) it. He's like a – he's Supergirl's version of Metallo. No, exactly right. Exactly right. And and the thing that I like about him is that he has truly been a rogues for her, right? Mm-hmm. He was in the 83 Kupperberg series, mm-hmm. and then he gets brought back by Gates. So he kind of like transcends yeah. the incarnations. He's like truly her enemy. Right. Uh, well, as for Hyathis and the Manhawks, you know, we're getting both Hawkman and Hawkgirl in Legends of Tomorrow. So who knows? We might see some of their villains. Yeah, you know, the Hyathis thing is I could remember reading, you know, there was the equalizing plague on Thanagar and she Mm -hmm. cured them. And I can remember reading that scene as a kid and just being like floored. She arrives, she's on top of a mountain, the cure comes as rain. They describe it as like a baptism of these people getting their individuality back. And and then I like sought out that issue because I lost it. I read it as a kid. And then I read the scene and I was like, oh, it was so much better in my memory. I shouldn't have have sought it out. (laughs) That happens. Uh, yeah. I, I've been there. All right. Back to Creeper a little bit before we go. Any recommended readings, like, other than the, the not the Niles one, the... Um... Yeah, yeah. The Cliff Chang, Jason Hall called yeah. Colbert the Creeper. You know, I would say um, there's a hardcover out that I don't even own that is called, like, the Steve Ditko Creeper that mm-hmm. includes the showcase, the eight issues of Beware of the Creeper that were his alone, that um, first issue special and those uh, world's finest. And I think that if you really want to get to the essence of the character, that would be what I would recommend the most. Um, I don't even own that yet, but after doing all of the research for this, I think I have to go out and buy it. 
<laughs> well, if you do, let me know again how that worked out. Uh, you made me rethink this origin, and there are elements of the story that I really, really like. And if this same creative team, if Helfer and Giffen took over a Creeper book after this, I would have been curious to follow it. But, yeah, I just keep coming back to that. I, there's a lot about this character that I think is just doesn't work, or it feels like it's ripping off characters that I like better. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I don't. I, I think he he needs to be in his own little world. Like I also, I feel the same way about Captain Marvel. I want Captain Marvel in his own little pocket universe. I want the Creeper in his own little pocket universe too. Yeah, I almost think the best thing that you could do is just like tell somebody to do a Creeper book, but make it as crazy as Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Right? It mm. has to be off the rails for this character to work. At, at his best um and but i think you're right i mean if this was a secret origin story that was meant to propel him into his own series i would have bought it i don't know if in the mid 80s a character that is like and he gets his superpowers from super lsd would have flown <laughs> uh, uh given the nature of the country at that time i kind of made the same point when i was talking about our man i think if this character was created today you would do the drug angle, but this would have to be either a parody of superhero comics or some sort of like, like a very sophisticated deconstruction of the mythos. You know, like if, you know, like Mark Millar would do something with his character for, uh, for image or for boom or something like that. Yeah. Uh, any other big thoughts on the character of the creeper? I don't think so. I think the best thing that I could hope for would be that Giffen throws him into the current JLA 3001 because he seems to be putting all of his favorites in that book. <laughs> hey, did, was Justice League United canceled? Justice League United was canceled. And can I tell you that really upset me because I thought Jeff Parker had the best idea, which was I'm going to have four characters and then a rotating bunch of guest stars. Mm -hmm. And to me, he brought a sensibility to comics that felt classic. And this would become like the next generation's Brave and the Bold, right? Yeah. Like where else are you going to learn about, you know, Robot Man or Steel, right? You're only going to meet him in these books. That's the way I met a lot of characters growing up was that I was introduced to them in these team-up books. And then uh, that was one of the ones that got canceled, which I think is just a shame. All right, DC. <laughs> yeah, I know. They canceled a bunch of books, so I don't quite understand them all the time. I have no answers for that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Fire everybody and hire me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Let's just do <laughs> our our blogosphere, our podcastosphere, all of us will do a community wide like reboot of the DC universe. We we know the type of comics that we want to read, regardless of what other people do. Exactly. So, all right. Well, if you have no other big thoughts on the creeper, and it was great to have you back on the show. Uh, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter at uh, drang70, Doctor Ange70. I tweet a lot about how busy I am at work and how much I love comics and I run the Supergirl blog comicboxcommentary.blogspot.com I am so excited for that show coming up. It looks great. Yeah. I just I just can't wait to see it. I think that Melissa Benoist is going to be spot on perfect and they just keep adding more and more characters from the DC universe mm -hmm. that makes me just think there's going to be a true feeling of universe there. Oh, the, the Red Tornado pick that came out just recently. Yeah. 
I, I'm I'm not going to naysay it. I'm not gonna I'm not going to like criticize that. I think it's fine. Um, everything will depend on how it looks in practice. Yeah, you know, I actually sent a tweet out after I saw it that said, I have learned not to overreact or even react to the first picture of anything that I see because Mm -hmm. I hated the Flash costume when I first saw that. Mm -hmm. I thought the Supergirl costume was too dark. And then all of a sudden you see live action shots of it or different things. And it's like, oh, it's way better than I anticipated. So I agree with you. I kind of looked at it and kind of gave it a side eye. And then I was like, wait a minute, there's going to be CGI. He's going to be flying. I said, it's probably going to look way better. Very, very cool. One more time, Ange, thank you for being part of the Secret Origins podcast, and I look forward to having you back again in the future sometime. Yeah, thank you very much for letting me do this story. This was the one that I really was hoping that I would be the guest star on. Well, thank you very much for being part of it, because Lord knows I really didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Perfect. All right. Before breaking for our next segment, I did reach out to Luke Giaconetti to ask him about the Creepers' status in The Outsiders and The New 52. He said when Pete Tomasi and Dan DiDio were writing The Outsiders, sans Batman, each member of the team represented some aspect of the Dark Knight detective. The Creeper represented the psychological aspect of Batman that instills fear. And Luke supported what Ange mentioned, that there was a storyline where Creeper was taken to hell to spawn a race of Creeper demons, but the story was not fully realized before the series ended. Luke also said, in the New 52, Creeper appeared in the Katana series as an Oni from feudal Japan. And Nascenti wrote Jack Ryder as a tabloid TV host who died, but Luke doesn't remember if Ryder was possessed by the Creeper before the Katana series was also cancelled. That seems to be a recurring theme. Anyway, we'll be back with another Secret Origin after this promotional break. Don't go away. Hello, sweetie. Hey there, True Believers. My name is Aaron Moss. Tell my friends, they call me Head. Do you love Firestorm, The Atom, G.I. Joe, or other comic books? How about Star Wars, superhero movies, role-playing games, or books? Well, you know what? I love them all. Come join me monthly. (laughs) Well, okay, mostly monthly. As I talk about the things I like, and occasionally some of the things I don't. Where you may ask? Why, well, I can be located at headspeaks.com under Headcasts. I can also be found on iTunes under Headspeaks or at Stitcher Radio at stitcher.com and my website, head.headspeaks.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Google, both under Headspeaks. Come take a listen. Headspeaks is a proud member of the Headcast family. Also, not all episodes are family-friendly. This podcast is not endorsed or affiliated with Kylie Mignot. Though, that would be cool, huh? Anyways, I'll let Kylie take us out.
we're back. My next guest is making his long-awaited debut on the Secret Origins podcast. He's the host of Views from the Long Box and Bailey's Batman podcast, and one of the hosts of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and Tales of the Justice Society of America. He also reviews Superman-related comics for the Superman homepage, and from time to time he pops up on Radio KAL, the Supergirl Radio podcast, and the Fire and Water podcast. And we're thrilled to finally have him on Secret Origins. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Michael Bailey. Welcome to the show, Michael. Wow, that was, uh, that was a really good introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Feel free to use that like for the next time, you know, if you just want to borrow that clip and send that to any other shows that you're appearing on to say, yes, this is how you need to announce my presence in the future. Hey, I'm just glad when people say, Hey, I got that, that jackass Bailey on the show. So, uh, no, I appreciate it. No, I'm really glad to be on the show. Well, I, it is really wonderful to have you, um, better late than never. I've, I have mentioned this uh, story on the Supermates podcast with Chris and Cindy Franklin. I don't think I've mentioned it on this show. So for our listeners, uh, you guys are getting one of the secrets behind the secret origins that I like to say. Michael Bailey here was one of the very first guests that I approached when I decided to do this show way back in January or February of this year. Uh, and he was going to be my guest on the Golden Age Superman story from episode one. I asked, Michael said yes, but when I asked him, I told him we would be recording in like February or early March. And in fact, I wasn't ready to record until late April. And by then, our schedules conflicted, uh, things just shifted around, and we couldn't get together in the time frame that I needed to record that episode. So thankfully, Chris Franklin stepped in with very little notice, like about a day and a half, um, and he knocked it out of the park, and I'm very happy with the way that went. But all that is to say that I have been looking forward to Michael being on this show for 18 episodes. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that. And yes, for, uh, Chris, uh, I couldn't have done better than that. That was a great conversation between the two of you. I really enjoyed that episode. Oh. I enjoy all the episodes, even the ones with Shag. Oh, he's the worst. I hate him. Uh, you know, I've just known him so long. It's the only reason I put up with him. <laughs> well, not to put you in a box or anything, but I imagine when our listeners think of you, they probably think of your Superman fandom. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the Golden Age Green Lantern. <laughs> well, you know, technically, since Scott and I, uh, even though we haven't done one in quite some time, we do Tales of the JSA. I mean, it, it kind of is in my uh, my wheelhouse on that score. So That's right. That's, actually, that was my subtle way of kind of prodding you into saying, hey, when are we going to get another one of those episodes? <laughs> yeah, everyone. Uh, man, I got to tell you, between my schedule being screwed up and his schedule being screwed up, we just are uh, we have not been able to. To, to put that together the way we want to, because frankly, um, we uh, we put a lot into those shows, especially the crisis show. Mm -hmm. And editing those things is like I just try to do it so freaking perfect that uh, that between scheduling and getting stuff edited, it's 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 a, it's a tougher show to do. I believe it, it shows in the final product. But I, no, I appreciate that. I, I think all of your listeners would agree with me in saying if you need to sacrifice your personal and professional life to give us more <laughs> tales of the JSA, <laughs> we expect you to make that decision. So. Well, I appreciate that. Well, well, only if my store closes. Oh, wait. Oh, too soon? 
sorry. No, it's not too soon. It's, it's actually absolutely fine. But no, I love the Golden Age Green Lantern. I really do. He's one of my favorite JSA members. He's mine too. But how did you first uh, discover the character? When did you first kind of meet Alan Scott? <laughs> uh, back in the early, early days of my collecting, one of the kids in my neighborhood, you're going to laugh at the name. His name was Wang Chung. Not nice. hitting on that. Okay. Uh, he was the first guy I ever knew that like collected comics, and he was the first guy I traded comics with. And from him, I got Crisis Number Five, which was my first issue of Crisis because I like jumping in the deep end. Uh, <laughs> and also, there was this uh, two-part Justice League Justice Society crossover. Uh, that was written by Kurt Busiek, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the last ones they did. And in both of those, there was this... Uh, uh, let me back up. I knew who Green Lantern was because of the Super Friends, and I, and I had the action figure. Mm-hmm. I was a little confused who this dude in the red shirt and the green pants was, who was also called Green Lantern. So that was my first exposure to him, but I really wouldn't get to know him until the Lenz Trzuski, Mike Parabek series yeah uh from 92 93 and in 99 when the jsa came back like in full force uh, around that time period i read the miniseries the golden age Mm -hmm. and alan scott is a big player in that series and between all of that jsa stuff hitting me and reading that i just got to really like this guy named Alan Scott. You know, uh, Jeff Johns would eventually kind of set him up as one of the elder statesmen of the DCU. And I just always liked the idea that there was this guy who wasn't part of the core, but was still Green Lantern and his powers were different. And they did all kinds of weird stuff to him. They made him young. They made him old again. They tried to make him part of this group called the Sentinels of Magic. Uh, which didn't last at all. But through it all and through JSA, he was just like, he was a badass. Mm -hmm. He really was. He was like, he was in the post-crisis on Infinite Earths pre-Flashpoint, because we've got to qualify the hell out of this stuff now, uh, DCU, he was like the Superman of the Golden Age. He had that kind of gravitas of Superman that's, that gravity when he walked in the room, you understood who you were dealing with. And I just, I just loved the character from that. And I, and I have read his, some of his golden age adventures, which are fantastic by the way. And there's even this really great, uh, series of novels called the sleepers. It was a green lantern, three, uh, three books in the series. The first one was about Kyle Rayner. The third one was about Hal Jordan, and at the time, Hal Jordan was the Spectre. But the the middle one was an out-and-out retelling of Alan Scott's origin. It's a total period piece, and it's set in the 1940s. And graphic audio has adapted it. Wow. And it's amazing. It's well worth the $14 download. 
It really is. I cannot recommend it enough. If if after you hear this or you've read this story and you want to want to hear like a really great take on this origin, I I can't I can't recommend it enough. I definitely it, I definitely want to check that out. It's fantastic. I like I said I I really can't recommend it enough. But no, it's it's one of the reasons why I, I kind of poked around to see if anybody had claimed this one because if you know I I just I wanted to. You know, I like the JSA characters, but this one, you know, especially since it's his, uh, you know, 75th birthday, mm-hmm. uh, I uh, I really just wanted to, uh, to to be part of something involving Green Lantern. So I appreciate the uh, the invite on this. No, no, not a problem. I'm happy to have you. And and I've I kind of came to the character in a similar time. I think. I feel like I already knew who he was just sort of in in the ether, even though I wasn't a big DC reader in the 90s, but it probably would have been the Golden Age miniseries was the first time I actually read him and kind of really like dove into who the character was. And then after that, JSA. Uh, And yeah, and I I always liked him. It's... There's something about the costumes of the Golden Age characters, like this clash of colors that mm-hmm. really that really should not work, and I don't think they would work in any other media. Like I, I, I can't, I really can't see his his costume translating outside of a comic book. Maybe somebody could could do a version that would make it work, but it's just the these weird colors. But like on the page, it's so striking, it's so dynamic, it's such an amazing look. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I completely hear you. What he said, like he does, when you when you create this sort of world of the Golden Age characters without the the Trinity of you know Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, I think he does step in and fill that void for Superman mm-hmm. as as the leader, as the sort of the face, and he's the one who's going to be the field general. And yeah, I've always just I, I've liked that about the character. He's just so insanely powerful. He is, I mean, and I and I like the fact that it's different. I like the fact that he is magic. It's it's not the same as the Green Lantern Corps. And this is where I've I've talked about this on the show before, and I kind of create this distinction. I like the sort of pre-crisis status that there was in Earth Two, that there was a separate world with these heroes, because in my head canon, in my sort of DC universe. I always, always, no matter what, I can't help it, I always gravitate towards the most iconic versions of these heroes. And for me, that's the Super Friends or the Super Powers toys or something like that. So when I think of Green Lantern, I can't help it. I think of Hal. And I don't like the idea that Alan Scott is a lesser version of Green Lantern or a Mm -hmm. proto-Green Lantern. Like, he's the beta test and then they perfected it and gave us the Green Lantern core. No, I much prefer the idea that on a separate world, he doesn't take a backseat to Hal Jordan and the core. He is the best on his, you know, niche corner where he exists. Oh, that's why I kind of liked what Byrne did in Generations. When Kyle shows up later in the series, he's not a Green Lantern core Green Lantern, he is the successor to to Alan Scott, and with a kind of similar costume as well. So yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, there's something, you know, the, the DC universe or or DC as it stands right now uh, has been has its head so far up 
the, the Silver Age's ass, if you'll excuse the, the expression. Uh, you know, and just, you know, bringing back how... And, and that is not to say that I did what Jeff Johns did with the character, because I really liked that series. I like Green Lantern Corps. I liked Rebirth. Me too. I even liked Blackest Night to a certain extent, mm-hmm. uh, even though I thought that the main series was weaker than its crossovers. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was always, you know... I never really gravitated towards Hal. Uh, Kyle was actually my first Green Lantern, which is why I think another reason why I like Alan so much, because Kyle was hooked up with Jade, uh, <laughs> who's Alan's daughter. And that was another really interesting thing is you've got this guy who's kind of a straight arrow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he he is all that is good and right, and he's moral and all that. And yet he kind of hooked up with a villain and had two kids out of wedlock. I mean... <laughs> That's which is awesome. <laughs> that's just that's just so different. But when he found out about them, he did try to take some measure of responsibility. Now, everything they did with Obsidian was kind of questionable, right? Uh, especially in JSA. But at least it was him as a father trying to take care of his son instead of turning his back on him or whatever. And there's a lot of fun stuff with the idea of. Kyle dating his daughter so you know like it's it's almost like David Tennant being married to the doctor's daughter <laughs> when she was the doctor's daughter so all right well let's uh let's get into the character's publication history before we talk about this origin um, as always, if I leave anything out or if I glaringly omit something, feel free to jump in or correct me. The original Green Lantern, Alan Scott, was created by artist Martin O'Dell with some assistance from editor Sheldon Moldoff and writer Bill Finger, who, you might have heard recently, had a hand in the creation of Batman. (laughs) The character debuted in All-American Comics number 16, which came out 75 years ago, specifically on May 21, 1940, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. While Alan Scott continued to appear in All-American Comics, later that same year he appeared in All-Star Comics Issue 2 and then became a founding member of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Issue 3. After All-Star Comics number 8 in 1941, Alan Scott's status as a Justice Society member was reduced to honorary because Green Lantern received his own quarterly book. This made Green Lantern the fourth of DC's heroes, after Superman, Batman, and The Flash, to spin out of an anthology book with his own series. Then, in 1942, Green Lantern joined Wonder Woman and The Flash as the trifecta of heroes headlining another quarterly book, Comic Cavalcade. In 1945, Green Lantern and The Flash were allowed to return to the Justice Society in the pages of All-Star Comics, meaning throughout the latter half of the 1940s, Green Lantern appeared regularly in four different titles, though most of them were quarterly or bimonthly. After appearing in hundreds of stories throughout the 40s, Green Lantern suffered the same fate as many of the heroes of the Golden Age, being usurped in his magazines by a dog and a guy named Doiby and eventually vanishing from publication for more than a decade. In the Silver Age, Alan Scott returned with the other Justice Society heroes of Earth 2 in the multiple Earths crossovers in The Flash and Justice League of America. In 1976, DC resurrected All-Star Comics, giving the Earth 2 Justice Society a regular book once again. Over the next ten years, he appeared in All-Star Comics and All-Star Squadron and Infinity, Inc. occasionally, which followed the adventures of Alan Scott's kids, Jade and Obsidian. 
After the crisis on Infinite Earths, the Justice Society fell out of view for a couple of years as the members went to Ragnarok to fight a never-ending battle against Norse mythological figures because, sure... However, the team didn't go away for long. In the 90s, Green Lantern Alan Scott appeared in Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, an eight-issue Justice Society of America miniseries, another series following that, and numerous crossover events, all culminating in JSA, which began in 1999, and a new Justice Society of America volume in 2006. Post-Flashpoint, Alan Scott was rebooted as the Green Lantern of the New Earth 2, amidst some minor controversy when DC announced the character was now gay. And I say minor controversy because I don't remember there being a tremendous backlash. If anything, I think it was just met with you know, skepticism that this was just a stunt. Is that how you perceived it, or what did you think when they made that announcement? Yeah, I, I think some people took it as... He's a gay character instead of a character who is gay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But however, it was written by James Robinson, so Alan Scott was a character who was gay. Uh, Did you read Earth 2 at all? I read about the first six or seven issues of Earth 2, and then I I dropped out of it. See, here's where he sold me on, on this Alan Scott being gay. Well, first... It was a completely new Alan Scott. So mm-hmm. it's not like, because uh, I think what some people took it as is that they were revealing that this Golden Age character has been gay all this time, and that's right. not what they did. Nope. But what sold me on it is that, as we'll discuss in his origin, there's a train crash, mm-hmm. and his focal point to use his ability comes from the engagement ring he was going to give his fiance. And because he because Robinson did that, I was totally on board with it. I'm like, that is such an emotional way of having that happen. And really, after that, him being gay in the issues that I read really wasn't much of a deal. It was just his character. You know, it was kind of like Batwoman almost. Mm-hmm. You know, she's gay. Who cares? You know? Yeah, I liked that about it. I also, I kind of liked the fact that they... They further distinguished him from the Green Lantern core the, the, of like the of outer space by making his power sort of tied into the same essence of the green that Swamp Thing mm-hmm. kind of comes from. So they kind of made him that, yeah. the avatar of green. And I thought that was at least a very different take. So you're not going to confuse him with the other types of Green Lanterns. So you're right. I, I liked that that version of the character. I liked the, the emotional, the, the tragedy of him losing his, his, uh, his lover, his fiance essentially. And, and using that as the dramatic and emotional hook to kind of fuel his superhero origin. I thought that was really good. I did not like the costume redesign. No. Um, I also, no. there, there were just, there were other things about that story that, and this is going to be, this is going to be a, a controversial statement that I know a lot of people will give me hell for, but I think James Robinson has a lot of great ideas and great stories, but I have trouble reading his comics because I think there's just something about his voice, something about his his particular writing style that I don't like. I I tried so hard. I wanted to love Starman, but I felt like I was always held at a distance when I was reading that book because something about his writing style just turned me off and i can't explain it but it's just so i don't know well i'm, I'm gonna channel shag for a minute and say you're broken and that's okay <laughs> uh 
No, you know, it's funny because uh, I, I read Starman years ago. Uh, I read like all 80 issues in a, in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years ago, I read like the first storyline again. And it was amazing to me how much I still enjoyed it. But Robinson in that series and, and, and maybe was kind of like stuck in that Tarantino mode mm. where everyone's cool and I have to make a lot of really weird pop culture references. Now, he infused it into the character. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But, you know, at times you have bad guys arguing about who the best Philip Marlowe was <laughs> on screen. And, and, and modern day Robinson... I thought we got flashes of his greatness on Earth 2 again, but there's so much of his work that I read that I was just like, this is just dark and dark and dark for no real discernible reason. It has nothing to do with character. It's all about how much you can shock somebody. Though, to be fair, he put Kong Gorilla on the Justice League. <laughs> That's insane enough to work. So... Uh, hats off to him on that. So, but yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree that his work can be kind of. Th- there's something about it that makes you like you're always aware that you're not on the same level as the writer, right? For some reason, but it, it it never stopped me from liking it. But I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Anyway, so that'll um, people are mashing their keyboards right now in response to no, this. no. I mean, I mean, uh, my friend Thomas DJ has said on occasion that he's he's wondering what kind of you know like if they're ever going to do like a dark half two, <laughs> uh, where it turns out like James Robinson has this like you know baby stuck to him or whatever. So uh, the, the only thing I will add to your publication history is at one point he became known as Sentinel. That's right. Yeah, uh, and that was really during the Green Lantern Corps uh, quarterly, mm-hmm. uh, and it was kind of to kind of further separate him from Green Lantern. Like, since it came at a time when Green Lantern was in its like third heyday, I guess you could say it. Because mm-hmm. uh, what a lot of people don't remember is that as awesome as it was when Jeff Johns brought Green- Hal Jordan back, and that created like this whole family of books. It's not the first time that that happened. Right. Uh, in 1990, when they started mm-hmm. the, the new Green Lantern series, Green Lantern was hot for like three years after that. Right. You had Green Lantern, and, you had Green Lantern Core Quarterly, you had Mosaic. There was a mm-hmm. bunch of stuff going on then. Guy Gardner got his own yeah, series. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was this whole little corner of the DCU, and he was part of that, but they, they changed his costume to a very 90s-looking costume that... On the other hand, I kind of like. And they de-aged him for a little while, mm. uh, which was really kind of strange. Like the star heart did something to him. And then there was the whole confusion about, you know, like the JSA disbanding really uh, because he was because uh, he had his own special during Underworld Unleashed, too. So what was that called? It was like Sentinels of Darkness or something like that. It was a. Uh, it was a really bad comic. I, I remember that a lot of the, a lot of the, like some of Underworld Unleashed was really good. Some of it, not so much th- at all. Really, I think I only read the first issue. Like I think the I main series is great. It really is. Some of those crossover. It's it's like it is so rare for there to be a huge crossover 
where both the crossover and the issues that are crossing over are both good. You really mostly only have one or the other. Like, Legends is an exception, because mm-hmm. I think the Legends series was good, and the crossovers were good. But then you have something like Millennium, where the main series <laughs> sucks, but you actually get some really kind of cool character moments. Invasion's one where it all worked. And, and, and Underworld Unleashed was kind of the inverse of Zero Hour. Yeah, okay. So... But I have babbled on long enough. I apologize. <laughs> no, I actually I just uh, read some of those Green Lantern core quarterly issues recently. Um, I picked up a bunch of them cheap, uh, specifically to read the Alan Scott stories. And I discovered one that a story that I had no idea ever existed. Um, and being a Black Canary fan, this one really kind of surprised me. Is I think in I think in core quarterly issue three. Um, it shows the Justice Society members like learning that Dinah Drake died, which Ooh. happens, spoiler alert, at the end of Secret Origins. Um, we'll, we'll get to that uh, episode in about f- uh, 30 issues or 30 episodes or so. Um, but they, yeah, they found out about it and they kind of visit her gravestone. And I was like, wait a minute, I've got a, I've got a Black Canary blog and podcast. I never knew this story existed. Um, and it's only it's like the first three pages of a ten page story, but it, it was a cool little moment. So. You know, and people are down on those quarterly type books, but I think they're made for moments like that. Mm-hmm. They're made for these little continuity stories where you can explore things like that. So I like that idea. I really I I don't have a full collection. I I've been trying to track them down, and they're kind of hard to find down here for some reason. I have no idea why. Well, after I'm finished reading the the Nort stories for my uh, yeah. for my research for that story, then I can I can send them. <laughs> Good Nort. Um, okay, well we've uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but we haven't talked about the character's origin yet. And and given that that's what this podcast is all about, we should probably get to that. Did you have any thoughts on the cover of Secret Origins issue 18? Uh, I like uh, I like. Green Lantern, I really don't like the Creeper. Uh, there's something really off about him, but I like the idea that he's created like this weird geometric design with his ring. And uh, one of the things that I love about the Golden Age Green Lantern costume is, one, he's got puffy sleeves, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a swashbuckler look. But I love that, you know, it, it's like, was Alan Scott colorblind <laughs> when he designed this thing? Because it's green pants, a red shirt, and a purple cape with a flared collar. That's awesome. It shouldn't work. And yet, and yet, it does. I think he bought his pants in, like, the, the bottom half. I think he, he went shopping at the same place that Hawkman goes to. <laughs> because the pants and the boots are very, very Hawkman-like. But he must have, like... He must have looked at himself in the mirror and he said, I don't have the chest or the abs to pull off Hawkman's look. I gotta wear a big shirt that covers up my, my non-muscles. Um, but yeah, it's another thing, like the red shirt, the the, the purple cape, like, yeah, it just, it works. So. Alright, well, are you are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Alan Scott Green Lantern? Yeah, the tale of the Green Lantern. <laughs> Uh, which was, of course, written and edited by Roy Thomas. Uh, artwork by George Freeman, it looks like. Mm-hmm. 
Anthony Tallon was the colorless, colorist, not colorless, who is married to uh, Adrian Roy, by the way. Found that out recently. Wow. That was interesting. Did uh, they, they ever compete against each other for, for jobs? I have absolutely no idea. That'd be interesting to know. Uh, Gene Semek, letterer, and future creator of Gargoyles, Greg Wiseman, uh, as the co-editor. I'm fascinated that he had a comic book career uh, before he went to Hollywood to spin gold with just about everything he created. More than four billion years ago, as we reckon time, the beings that would eventually become the guardians of the universe desired to stem the evil unleashed on the universe by one of their own named Krona. They created this gargantuan, and I'm using that word from the comic because I would never normally say the word gargantuan because uh, it feels weird, uh, power battery, some rings, and a core of dedicated star rovers known as Green Lanterns. They also decided that magic had to go. And to this end, they locked all of the magic they had gathered into the heart of a star where it was to remain for all eternity. One problem. The magic and everything about it became a sentient being known as the Star Heart. The Star Heart that knew that one day its power would be released throughout the universe for good or ill. So a portion of that force willed itself to break away. Are we getting complicated yet? Because I, I kind of needed a flowchart at this point. Over the eons, it eventually gathered uh, enough debris about it so it resembled a huge green meteorite. A few centuries ago, it crashed to Earth, where a bunch of Chinese villagers discovered the meteor and were generally freaked out about it, especially when it spoke. Three times shall I flame green. First, to bring death. Second, to bring life. Third, to bring power. Chang, a lamp maker, wasn't freaked out, took the metal, and fashioned a lamp. Some of the villagers weren't too keen on this and attacked him. One of them held the lamp above his head as if he was trying to open the Matrix of Leadership. You got the touch. <laughs> but instead of lighting their darkest hour and playing a badass 80s rock anthem, the lamp came to life and said, Three times shall I flame green, first to bring death. And it brought a lot of death. Uh, the lamp bounced around many hands and brought good or ill to its owners. In the fourth decade of the 20th century, which kind of sounds like uh, the beginning to Superman the movie, actually, uh, it was found by a trio of adventurers as they tracked pirates of China seas. They brought it back to America, where eventually it was left out of Arkham Asylum in Gotham City, because this is the post-crisis DCU. There it was given to Old Billings, a patient that went crazy after the crash of 29 and killed his stockbroker. Billings fashioned the Chinese lamp into a train lantern, and once again the green light flared. Three times shall I flame, the second to bring life. The rays of the lamp cure Billings of his mental disease. Somehow. Because apparently crazy can be cured at least. A few years later, the lamp made its way onto a train that was crossing on the newly constructed trestle bridge in the American Midwest. The men that designed that bridge, Alan Scott and Jimmy Henton, were on that train. And Jimmy was nervous about Decker, one of their competitors, and was worried that he will try something since they underbid him for the build. 
Turns out that Jimmy's fears were well-founded because the bridge blows up real good. The lantern flares again and speaks to the only survivor, Alan Scott. It tells Alan how it is flaring for the third time. It will bring power, and Alan needs to make a ring, which he does. Once he puts on the ring that he fashioned, he no longer wants to kill Decker, but get him another way. The ring runs on his willpower. Alan uses that to fly to Decker's mansion. He makes short work of Decker's men until one of them hits him with a wooden paperweight. This doesn't stop Alan, and he takes the rest of the men out the old-fashioned way before using the ring to fly Decker up into the sky. He demands that Decker admit to what he did, which the frightened man does in the form of a written confession before he expires. That night, Alan learned the might and limitations of his power. And soon afterwards, he donned a special costume and took on the name Green Lantern and even had a spiffy oath to say as well. Sometime later in the summer of 1940, Alan is visiting the World's Fair when he sees a woman about to shoot someone. He stops her from doing so and demands an explanation. Her name is Irene Miller, and her brother Danny worked for a gangster named Brett Murdoch. He wanted out and was going to go straight, but Murdoch framed him for drunken manslaughter, and he was sent to prison where he can't tell the truth for fear of being harmed by Murdoch's men. Alan changes to Green Lantern and visits the prison where Danny to run a protection racket at the fair, and that Murdoch also planned to steal the proceeds of a charity concert. Green Lantern takes off, and while he doesn't stop the robbery, he prevents the men from escaping. This enrages Murdoch, who believes that a judge named Homer Wake must have talked. He orders his men to take care of Wake, not knowing that Green Lantern is hovering outside the window. After saving the judge, GL learns that Murdoch is holding Wake's daughter in a small room in the Parisphere at the World's Fair. Alan calls Irene and tells her not to get her hopes up, but his friend Green Lantern is on the case and asks her to meet him at the fair. Murdoch also heads to the fair to check on the kid, and soon Green Lantern arrives and takes on Murdoch's men. GL chases Murdoch to the top of the where Murdoch hits GL with a piece of wood. Murdoch uses this opportunity to beat on GL, who manages to snag the mobster's leg and throw him not only off balance, but off of the perisphere. The pain from the beating prevents GL from summoning the will to save the man, but he manages to get the dying mobster to confess that he framed Danny Miller. Murdoch does, and a nearby cop hears the deathbed confession, which means that Danny Miller will be free for sure. And thus, the beginnings of the first human to call himself the Green Lantern in those days before the Owen Green Lantern Corps made itself known to the Earth they served and protected. Alan was never formally one of the Corps, yet he was worthy of the name as any who came before or after. All right, thank you very much. Um, my first question. Okay. What is Alan Scott's Green Lantern Oath? Uh, and I shall shed my light over dark evil, for evil cannot stand the light, the light of Green Lantern. Okay. Second question. His oath begins with an ellipses and a contraction. <laughs> Doesn't that suggest we're only getting part of the oath? Um... Yeah, I guess you're right. I never really thought about that. I, that's that's something that's always bothered me. It's like, and I don't want to be like a grammar fiend, but it's like, why why is his oath beginning with the word and? What what is he continuing from? It's like that's not how language works. Like, well, apparently engineering was his strong suit, but the uh, but grammar and proper sentence structure eludes him. 
So I, I went back to the original story from All Star or All American Comics uh, 16. Mm-hmm. And the way the panel breaks down, like, so we, we get a panel of Alan Scott just thinking this is where he's going to decide to be a hero. And it's a thought bubble. It's not dialogue, but it's a thought bubble. If I must fight evil beings, I must make myself a dreaded figure. I must have a costume that is so bizarre that once I am seen, I will never be forgotten. Next panel, and this is dialogue. He's speaking this Mission loud. accomplished. <laughs> yeah. And then he is speaking this loud. And I shall shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light, the light of the green lantern. This reads like it's almost a continuation of his thought before. Like, this is just a monologue he's doing in his head that he gives voice to. Like, he's talking to himself as he's checking himself out in the mirror, looking at his, like, spiffy new costume. So I I wonder when this became, like, the sacred oath, similar to what the the Green Lantern Corps would say. Well, Bill Finger, you know, wrote a lot of the early... Alan Scott stories and they're really good. Mm -hmm. They're like law and order good. (laughs) And and what I say by that is that they have pretty tight plots. Some of them are a little simplistic. Uh, There's one that I remember where this guy is contracted by criminals to pretend to be the long lost son of this rich family, kind of like an Anastasia type deal. Uh, And it turns out at the end of the story that he is actually the son. And that's silly, but the way Finger wrote the story, I was just like, oh, that's great. I mean, it was just like, when you can make me forget about lapses in logic and all that, you've done your job effectively. And I think maybe it was just one of those things where he said it once and they repeated it, but it was also one of those weird things where somebody took it later and took it literally. Right. And... He actually had several different variations of the oath, as I don't have them all in front of me. Uh, but he had a couple different versions. And in the 80s, when they had the Green Lantern Court, Salak actually used this as his oath instead really? of, yeah, instead of uh, in Brightest Day and Blackest Night. All of these lanterns were saying the oath at once. And this is what Salak said. Huh. So I thought that was really interesting. I was like, oh, okay, cool. They they have their own costumes now, and now they're like messing with their oaths. Okay, that, I, I was actually kind of down with it. Oh, cool. I like that. I, I'd never heard that. I, or I, I, maybe if I saw that, I just didn't remember it, but cool. Okay, well, that was, that was my first kind of just thing that I had to address. It's like, why does his oath begin with ellipses and contraction? Like, that just seems like, what are we not hearing? Okay. It, it was a thing where he says something really anti-Semitic, and they've just eliminated <laughs> that for, for obvious reasons. Oh, he just, <laughs> this, is, this is the only part of his horribly offensive tirade that they could print. Exactly. <laughs> Just a lot of like censored beep 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 beep, <laughs> and I shall shed my beep beep dark light over. All right, your thoughts on this origin story? Um, I really like the art. It's got a Joe Staten feel to it. I'm not really overly familiar with George Freeman, but this felt like '70s era Joe Staten, and I was really down with that. He is oddly precise 
certain panels and really intricate, and in others it's more cartoony. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you see Billings and his face is very detailed. And on the very next page, you have Jimmy and Alan and they're kind of more of the golden age. You know, it's, you know, like kind of cartoony face. So I, I kind of like that. I loved how he drew the costume. That belt is like huge and the <laughs> the shirt is very flowing. And that, that you know, on, on page 11, where he like flares the ring and it's the first shot because one of the things I've always found interesting about Alan Scott's origin is that he doesn't put the costume on until the very last panel of the story. Mm-hmm. Before that, he's just fighting in, in like a, a white shirt and some dungarees essentially. <laughs> so um, the story itself is kind of a mishmash and, and this is what Roy Thomas does in these stories. So, yeah. you know, he, he like takes a bunch of stuff. Uh, let me ask you a question. Is it me or does uh, does Danny Miller look like the penguin sidekick in that prison outfit? <laughs> I mean, I understand. I mean, it looks like he's wearing a jacket, not a shirt is what yeah. I guess I'm saying. Yeah, that looks it's, that looks tailored. <laughs> yeah. He's like, wow, that's a that's a pretty nice uh, prison. Um, it almost looks like Beetlejuice's outfit. <laughs> A little bit. Thomas, a little too much time on the in the first part of the story, like talking about where the lantern was. I don't know. I think he could have shrunk that down because I'm. I I, I want to know more about Alan Scott. Right. I I don't need to know too much about the village. The villagers that look kind of offensively racist in certain panels going after, you know, one of their own. I'm really curious to know if I'm missing something about page five. Does it seem like Thomas is referencing stuff that we should know about, but don't? Okay, so I was really curious about this, specifically the three people at the bottom. Okay. Um, This is mentioned in the All-Star Companion, volume four, um, which talks about the Secret Origin series. And the three at the bottom are supposed to be characters from Terry and the Pirates, that comic strip by, uh, oh. who was that, uh, Milton Caniff? Yeah, Milton Caniff, yeah, yeah okay. Milton Caniff. Um, so it's supposed to be those characters. It's Terry, Pat Ryan, and some, Connie or somebody. Uh, at, like, I, I don't know if there is a story specifically about them finding a lantern or if this was just a Roy Thomas thing where, hey, he, he was a fan of that strip. He's going to throw that homage, and that's how the lantern travels overseas. But as for the other images there, I don't know if that's anything specific. I mean, is he trying to suggest that this is the lantern that the genie came out of? Maybe. Or something? I don't know. I, I actually have that companion. You would have thought I would have cracked it open to look about, look at it about the story or the... Or... I'm glad that I caught that it was supposed to be something, even if I didn't specifically know what that something was. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty straightforward origin story. It's not as, well, it's, uh, it's two stories. It's, it's the origin story. And then another adventure that came like two issues later. So it's, it is this, you you mentioned before, it's a dense origin story because it's, it's clearly multiple stories that he's Mm -hmm. throwing in here. 
And he kind of had to do that because if he's not going to put on the costume until the end of his origin story, then you're not going to get too much mileage out of him beating up criminals in his costume. Right. And so, I, I leveled that complaint about the Firestorm origin back in yeah. issue four. So, I mean, I, I like this. It was very typical of the stories Bill Finger wrote at the time. Mm-hmm. That were, you know, it's just like, you know, you, you, you're you involving this one character because the one character isn't, uh, you know, is kind of in framed. So there's an ultimate mobster. And the story just kind of ends. And I'm sorry, uh, I hate to do this because, you know, my wife and I have this constant thing about Clark Kent's glasses. But how is Irene looking at Green Lantern and going, yeah, you look nothing like that Alan Scott gent I met the other day. Ugh, willful ignorance. The no, costume the costume is so loud she can't pay attention to his jawline. But no, it was fun. I mean, I, 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 there was nothing about it that made me go, God, I hate this. I, uh, but there was also nothing about it that made me go, well, this is one of the greatest things I've ever read. It's it's serviceable to his origin. And if if it was like in an issue of All-Star Squadron, which these were kind of originally supposed to be, I would have been totally down with it. So I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I did, and I, I think it's part of that is because I really liked the source material. I liked those those Golden Age Green Lantern stories. Um, kind of a, a few more specific notes. The first page, we kind of get a prelude where Roy Thomas writes the connection between mm-hmm. this Green Lantern and the Green Lantern Corps and the Guardians from Oa. But he does it in a way where I'm not sure he actually makes the connection because this Starheart – okay, I, I get that this thing has a sense of sentience, but I don't know why it would necessarily translate into Alan Scott calling himself the Green Lantern. Because even if the Starheart knew that that's what the Owens were calling themselves – the Owens rejected the, the Starheart. They cast it out mm-hmm. into the abyss of space. He should hate the Green Lantern Corps or the Owens and everything. I, I would think it would feel a sense of rejection if it has that level of sentience. So otherwise, we're just left with this explanation, well, that he just calls himself that because he, he finds the power with the Lantern, mm-hmm. in which case you're back to the fact that it's just a sheer coincidence and it's, it, there is no real connection. So, Well, there, there, I've always had a problem with the idea that the Assemble all magic and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the pre-crisis, they sent it to another universe, which is weird in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And I got the feeling that what Thomas was kind of hinting at on this first page is basically every magic thing in the universe comes from Starheart. And I never like that, as, you know, in terms of unless that is unless you're like the milestone universe where most people have the same origin right or rising stars, which has uh, a right. similar thing where they're vent that creates these people. I don't like it when people try to take burn, tried to do with Genesis that the speed force and the green lantern stuff and all of that comes from this God wave. And it's just like, no, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? You know, this first page is was actually kind of confusing. Uh, writing the synopsis was difficult on this one because I'm just like, well, what do I say and what I don't say? Do I just want to read it? <laughs> but no, that's going to take freaking forever, and I don't want to bore Ryan to death. So 
it's weird that he would want to be known as it's it's almost just like well i'm gonna go it would be like if the drummer that quit the beatles went off and tried to like form the beatles before the beatles broke big (laughs) it'd be kind of like that basically okay second thing the second prophecy is that the green flame shall bring life and in the story, it is used sort of metaphorically as it is, it is repairing a, a damaged or a mentally disturbed man's sanity. It is giving him a second chance at life by, as you kind of jokingly point out, yeah, just curing him of his mental illness. Because that's, that's, it's that simple. It just needs that magic touch. This story didn't have to be that complicated. You didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't need that metaphor. You could just have it cure somebody who is physically sick at death's door and give him a second chance at life more literally that way. Like, I don't know why it had to be, like, clever about being, oh, we're, we're giving you life because you're getting a second chance. You're, you're leaving the, uh, the asylum. This story isn't about that guy. Why did you take it to that level? Why not just cure somebody of heart disease or cancer? Yeah, that would have been actually the more interesting that it's this guy that's kind of at the end of his life and he's dying of cancer and he's it's stage four and he's got six weeks to live and the, the rays of the the lantern kind of get rid of it and he has a new lease on things, basically. Yeah, and then and then you get the same character. He, then he does the same thing. He takes this lamp and he fashions it into uh, this lantern shape. And it's simple, but it's – so anyway, so okay, that kind of bothered me. And, and mental illness is so complicated in and of itself. This guy, you know, the, the story they get is that in the crash of 29, he snapped and killed his stockbroker. <laughs> like, and, and just Cocoa Puffs after that. And it's just like, no, that's not how mental, and maybe I've been listening to the Arkham Sessions too much, <laughs> which is a great podcast where uh, Dr. Andrea Letamendi breaks down Batman the Animated Series on a psychological level. And I understand how complicated mental disorders really are that to say, oh, this thing cured him is almost insulting at this point. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know why they they brought it to that level when it's so obvious. You just just giving the gift of life is just curing somebody of of a physical or or ailment or some kind. And then because it's not about him. Okay, so, yeah, we're on the same page with that. Moving on. I like how he, he exacts his revenge on Decker, and this feels very of the time, because he gets Decker to sign the confession, and then he dies of fright or stress, a heart attack of some kind. Like, why did we need the two punishments? Like, mm-hmm. why wasn't one or the other just as good? Yeah, why why didn't he go to jail and have to spend the rest of his life there? Right. I mean, it's just like, it's kind of a hollow victory having the the confession at that point. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, we, we can't do anything about it. We can't arrest him. Like all this is going to prove is that Alan Scott, who mysteriously survived this train crash, didn't sabotage it himself. But the, uh, the novel that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. delves into, delves oh, into that specifically. Yes. It's, oh, cool. it's actually really interesting. Cool. At the the end of the story, when we get to the second, basically the second adventure where he's fighting the guy on top of the Parasphere, I 
I do like it's the conceit. I mean, Roy Thomas was being faithful to the the original story where the guy does fall off to his death. I mean, he gets he survives long enough to to make this confession, but Roy does include the flourish that Alan tried to catch him, that he tried to save him, but he was in a weakened state, so the ring wasn't powerful enough. I don't know. I kind of would have preferred him to go a fitting end for his kind. <laughs> Oh, I think Bill Finger was saving that line for something. Else. Oh, he had already used it. <laughs> so, you mentioned the artist, George Freeman. The only thing that I knew him from, he actually did two really good Batman stories. Uh, I think he was the artist on the autobiography of Bruce Wayne uh, from that issue of The Brave and the Bold. It was written by Alan Brenner. And I think he was the artist on... Uh, the Alan Moore Clayface story, Mortal Clay, from I think it's Batman Annual number eleven. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, that was great. And that the other story in that was the Penguin story. That was the first Norm Brayfogel uh, story that Brayfogel ever did for Batman. Um, but yeah, that that Mortal Clay story. I think uh, George Freeman drew that one. I can see that now, especially in the Batman when he's entering the uh, the the store yeah. at night. Yeah. It looks, yeah. So, I, yeah, and that's if that's the case, fantastic because that's uh, God, that's you're going back to the early days of me collecting with that annual. Oh yeah. Any other thoughts about this origin specifically? Uh, it was fun, you know. The as you have gone through on this series, you know, th- there isn't necessarily a bad one, but at the same time. Some are much better than others, and I would put this on the better than others side of things. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's certainly better than, say, the Jay Garrick, but, you know, it's not quite, what's his name, Wayne Boring and Jerry Ordway drawing Superman uh, with, with Roy Thomas providing the, the writing, but it's not quite as bad as some, uh, it's not as bad as others. It's a good, strong story because it's borrowing from two good, strong stories that were mm-hmm. themselves well-written and well-drawn at the time. Uh, and and so he's definitely – I think it's, it's a little bit crowded and the stories don't flow as well as they could. I would have liked to have seen maybe jettisoning that first prologue page and just doing some kind of like middle interlude that sort of – uh, I don't know, kind of bridges the gap between the two stories, but uh, I don't need it. It didn't, it didn't hurt the story for me. Yeah, or opening on the beginning of the second adventure and the origin as a flashback sequence in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So, Actually, that, that reminds me, because I noticed that too, in the original story from All-American, it begins, or not, yeah, it's All-American comics, sorry. I keep getting All-American, All-Star confused. Um, but in that first story, it begins with the train crash. It mm-hmm. begins with Alan and Jimmy, and then basically the, the lamp wakes him up and remi- and tells him the the previous parts of the prophecy in flashback. I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> so I'm surprised that he, he Roy Thomas approached this one more linearly, and I guess it's because I'm, he... I'm surprised he didn't try to connect the two stories with some tenuous... <laughs> reason to do so so let's not look a gift horse in the mouth here (laughs) (laughs) good point good point um okay other thoughts about green lantern alan scott we we talk a lot about the character in the top half of this uh this segment but any other big thoughts about the character 
Uh, not, nothing that I really haven't said already. I just, I just love the big guy. I, uh, I, I will always like him. Uh, it was always great when John's focused stories and story beats around him. Uh, one of the things that we didn't mention that I thought was a really awesome thing that Greg Rucka did was make him part of Checkmate. That's right. For, for a little while there. And that was just, it, it was just amazing to see this superhero, in a government espionage role all of a sudden. So I think it also proves how flexible he is because he's magic, but he's a superhero, but he's a mystery man, but he, he's part of, you know, more down to earth stories. Um, you know, he hasn't always had the best runs. Some of his backup features in green lantern in the seventies weren't the strongest. And it always seemed like when he teamed up with Hal, it was like a favor. Like, you know, you know, it's just like, well, come on. I, I, I guess you're the older version of me, but you know, <laughs> thanks to writers like Roy Thomas and Lynn Straczewski and Jeff Johns and, 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 and James Robinson and David Goyer. It's one of the only positive things you will ever hear me say about Dave Goyer. Uh, you know, and all them, they, they managed to bring him to where, you know, to the, to the heights that he deserved to be at. Yeah. I agree. Just adding to what you said about how flexible he is, I think for a lot of his, especially the more contemporary uh, publication history, we do see him as that elder statesman. He is a little, he is more fatherly, he is more experienced, a bit more world weary. But something about this particular origin that I liked was it reminded me that he was young when he got the ring. And in mm-hmm. his early stories, you really get the sense of of a kid in the sense of youth, the sense of virality that would be, that would be really fun in that swashbuckler mode. It presents an interesting take on that character too, when you don't see him as, as automatically the, the wise leader who's done everything a million times already. Um, but somebody who's figuring this out for the first time. Absolutely. Before we close the book on this one, um, we didn't really talk much about the sort of meta genesis of the character and what Martin O'Dell was thinking about when he created them, but all of that is readily available. I do want to give a shout out to uh, the Lantern cast. Uh, Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble uh, did an interview with Martin O'Dell's granddaughter, Jackie O'Dell. Uh, it was back on episode 226. It was a very cool episode where she talked about her memories of her grandfather and his experience at comic conventions decades after he created the character, and also his thoughts about where the Green Lantern name and franchise went after the Golden Age. Uh, I definitely advise all of my listeners, check that out. It's a very cool interview. The Lantern cast is a friend of this show. Chad has been on before, and I'm planning to have him and Mark come back on future episodes uh, so they can talk talk about Millennium while I drink and think about any other story in the history of comics. <laughs> so recommended readings. I mean, if, if somebody was coming to this character, if they didn't know much about Alan Scott, what would you say is the, the best place to read this character or what story should they start with? If you get a chance, track down the first Green Lantern archives, uh, which is reprints the original stories. I was surprised how well they read all these years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely the Golden Age. Uh, definitely Jeff Johns's JSA series. But since they haven't deemed to put it out in trade paperback yet, scour the back issues and track down the ten issue 
Mike Parabek Justice Society of America series from 1992 uh, because you know Alan's a big part of that. Yeah, and I and I can't recommend it enough. And some of and All Star Squadron, you know, he was a pretty big part of that too. I second all of those recommendations. I'm I'm looking at the Golden Age Green Lantern archives right now. Also the uh, the Justice Society of America eight issue series that came out before the Parabek one. That was also written by Len Strzewski. Came out in ninety one. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was like, yeah. There was Green Lantern was in it. Black Canary was in it. Flash, Hawkman, and Starman. Um, and it was set in the fifties with them kind of coming out of retirement for for one adventure against uh, Vandal Savage with Solomon Grundy, who was always fun. Yeah, it was like all the Impact Comics guys got together and did that. Yeah. Actually, that was something that we we kind of forgot to mention. Like this version of Green Lantern actually had a, a semi decent rogues gallery for the Golden Age. A lot of them yes. didn't show up until the later issues, like like in nineteen forty seven and forty eight. But he had Solomon Grundy, he had the Icicle, Harlequin, which we mentioned, mm-hmm. who he ends up marrying, which Molly, is fascinating. Yeah. That's awesome. Ah, <laughs> uh, Molly, such a sweet girl. So, Don Hor- Rose and Thorn. Rosenthorn, yes, yeah. Who he ends up, you know, having <laughs> an affair with, but whatever. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for being part of this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, views from the Longbox at viewsfromthelongbox.com. I just talk about comics and random stuff, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends and chag. Uh, from Crisis to Crisis, uh, which can be found at the Superman homepage and my Superman blog, FortressofBailey2.com, uh, which uh, is me and Jeff, <laughs> Jeffrey Taylor and I just hitting, as we're recording this, uh, the early 1995 issues. Uh, so we've got about 11 more years to go. But we've managed to get through some of the bigger points of that era. So... Uh, that's a lot of fun. And go over to Two True Freaks and check out Tales of the Justice Society of America. We're going to hear Scott Gardner and I talking about Alan Scott and Jay Garrick and a bunch of other characters uh, from the Golden Age where we heap praise upon Roy Thomas. Well, Except when we don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like my, my show is the counterbalance for that because I'm much more often <laughs> critical of, of the man. But we, I think between the two of us, we... we we give the man a lot of attention in one form or another. Yes, matter. absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Michael, thank you very much for being on this episode. You feel like coming back next time? Sure. Sounds like fun. Awesome. Thank you very much one more time. It was my pleasure. Before getting into listener feedback, a few things I wanted to address. Last episode, I pointed out that the audio quality on my Captain Comet segment with Kyle Benning wasn't as good as I would have liked. A whole bunch of you said I made way too big a deal about it, that it sounded fine, and you really liked the conversation with Kyle. I appreciate all those kind words, in part because it reaffirms the hard work I put into the show. That Captain Comet segment was about 28 minutes long, I think, and I cut 13 minutes from the conversation. That's not before and after chit-chat. That was 13 minutes once we started talking about the comic. 
A lot of that was dead air. A lot of that was me asking Kyle to repeat himself because the sound dropped out in mid-sentence. A lot was re-establishing lost connections. But still, there were some parts that were just garbled and couldn't be salvaged, so I excised them completely. I am still very happy with the final product, though, and I'm glad that everybody else seemed to be as well. I mention that because, as you probably heard, there were a few times this episode when the audio cut out on my talk with Michael Bailey. Unfortunately, because of the content of our discussion and the fact that the audio gaps usually only blanked out a word or two, I mostly left them in. I think you can hear Michael's Green Lantern analysis with a couple spots where the mic goes out and still understand what he's saying, whereas that was not the case at all when I recorded with Kyle. The only big chunk of Michael's that I cut around was actually at the very end when he was promoting From Crisis to Crisis. He started saying something about his co-host, Jeffrey Taylor, and the sound dropped in and out in weird succession that made it very difficult to discern what he was saying. I imagine it was something very complimentary about Jeffrey, or super offensive. Either way, it sounded better to cut that part out of the show. I guess if Michael has something nice or awful to say to Jeffrey, he has his own podcast for that. The second big thing about last week's episode Wow, did you guys hate the under-pressure cover by My Chemical Romance and The Used? I should have seen that coming, but I didn't care. I've made unpopular music choices on this show before. Kelly Clarkson, anybody? But I've never made a random or careless music choice. I knew that I wanted to use a My Chemical Romance song because I made fun of the band on an earlier show. Actually... I think I just made fun of kids wearing My Chemical Romance hoodies, but anyway. I actually like not all of their stuff, but a handful of their songs I genuinely like. What's more, I really wanted to use them for the Doom Patrol because, to me, Doom Patrol has that angsty mix of punk rock, glam, goth, and emo. That sound is perfectly tailored to the melodramatic, superheroic, emotional wreckage of the Doom Patrol. That's their soundtrack. Add to that... Grant Morrison, writer of Doom Patrol comics, has appeared in My Chemical Romance music videos. So why did I pick that particular song? Because it was a cover. Because it was two groups, just like the story showcased two Doom Patrols. Because it was a new take on an old song, just as the new DP comic was building off of what came before. Do I like that version of Under Pressure more than the original? Shit, no. The David Bowie and Queen version is one of my favorite songs, But the music to this podcast is not about playing my all-time favorite songs. If it was, every episode would end with Sam Cooke or Tom Waits. And I'm saying all of this also as a preventive measure for when everyone asks why I didn't use Creep by Radiohead in this episode. Okay, let's get into the feedback. Secret Origins Annual Number 1 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Anthony Durso, David Marchand, Doug Zavisha, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, It's Plastic Man, Jeremy Allen Jackson, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Michael J. King, Nathaniel Wayne, Norman, Pedro Angosto, Reading Hicks, Shane slash Boston Brand, Sin, Trekker Talk, and the Waiting for Doom podcast. Facebook likes, mentions, and shares came from Aaron Head Moss, Anthony Durso, Burt Barnard, Chris Ivey, Clinton Robson, Comic Reflections, David Foster, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jason O'Logan, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Russell Burbage, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. 
We got a lot of great Facebook comments, uh, many of them surprisingly talking more about Captain Comet than the Doom Patrol. Uh, but it seems like everyone likes and recommends Captain Comet's adventures in DC Comics Presents number 22 and the Secret Society of Supervillains comic. We got a nice comment from Burt Barnard who said, Thanks for the shout-out and thanks for your segment on Captain Comet. Burt posted a little bit of his own reading history with Comet and why he's such a fan of the character, saying he liked him best in the Ran Thanagar War miniseries. After that, they changed his personality and made him almost a jerk, and don't get me started on how they changed him in the New 52. Clinton Robinson said, So glad to finally have some really good background on Captain Comet. After hearing his origin and factoring in his mild angst, he reminds me a bit of Nexus and Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom. Is my impression off? Has anybody else come to a similar conclusion? Uh, I can't say with any degree of certainty because I haven't read Nexus or Dr. Solar, uh, but what little I do know, I think they're probably pretty comparable. Aaron Moss from Head Speaks, the Task Force X podcast, and G.I. Joe, a Real American headcast, mentioned that Russell Bragg covered DC Comics Presents issue 22, which is the Superman-Captain Comet team-up. You can hear that over on the DC Comics Presents show. It's a really fun podcast. Aaron also mentioned that Captain Comet was part of the Legion. That's the acronym version of the Legion, by the way, L-E-G-I-O-N. Greg Arujo cited my image of Captain Comet as an outlier who never really fit in with the DC Universe, as perhaps the reason why he was added to this annual. Unfortunately, Greg said, while Captain Comet's origin would have been serviceable in a regular issue of Secret Origins, it is overshadowed by Burns' work in the Doom Patrol story. And Van Z said, I remember sneaking my brother's Doom Patrol digest into school so I could read it. I have been a fan ever since. I was always fond of Captain Comet because of the Secret Society of Supervillains book. I especially remember that cool cover with Kid Flash and Captain Comet fighting Grodd. The Secret Origins podcast recently got a shout-out by Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast, except the shout-out came on Chad's blog devoted to Ragman, which you can read at thesuitofsouls.blogspot.com. I just started reading Chad's reviews of the Ragman series because I'd always heard of the character, but really didn't know anything about him. After reading the first couple of issue reviews, I really like Ragman. Visually and thematically, he's like a cross between the Spectre and Spawn, which is amazing, uh, with this Old Testament Hebrew mythology thrown in. Really fascinating. I'm liking everything I learn about the character, so if you want to know more about Ragman, check out Chag's blog. We got more wonderful comments on the WordPress page. As always, I'm cherry-picking the comments to read, but I encourage everyone to read the full discussion there and leave a comment of your own. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, Fabulous episode, Ryan, Doug, and Kyle. You add so much observational value in your thoughts on the Doom Patrol, such as the original lineup being a twisted version of the Fantastic Four. It's something Mike and I aspire to do in Waiting for Doom, but so often we just take the stories as they come because we are less thoughty. Well, first, thank you for the praise from me, Doug, and Kyle. Second, that means a lot coming from a Doom Patrol podcaster. And no one has ever called me thoughty before. I kind of want to show this comment to my wife. Then Paul talked about Captain Comet's appearances in Legion, adding, Having been a captive in space for decades and essentially an immortal, he was given a Captain America-esque man-out-of-time spin in that run, which worked really well, essentially hanging a lantern on his anachronistic aspects. That series is as enjoyable to read as the title is irritating to type. Sounds like it. Maybe I'll check out those Legion stories. 
Uh, finally, Paul said, The only other notable Captain Comet appearance is in the end of the brilliant Golden Age miniseries by James Robinson and Paul Smith. Adam Blake emerges as a successor to the Justice Society, participating in the climactic battle and being the first 1950s hero. I can't recommend that story enough. You know... <sighs> Even though I spoke ill of James Robinson's writing style in this very episode, I remember really loving that Golden Age miniseries. That and Sandman Mystery Theater were where I met a lot of these Golden Age characters for the first time. I kind of forgot about that because, damn, I don't think I've read that book in like 15 years. I don't even think I have a copy anymore. i got to track that down somewhere, either in trade or the issues. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast said, The Doom Patrol really does sound like one of those properties that would be terrific as an adaptation. The regrettable thing, though, is that movie studios care much more about name recognition than they do about whether or not something will actually adapt well. The only way this would happen would basically be the Ant-Man scenario, where a passionate filmmaker cares enough about that specific property to push it through. Even though, in that case, Edgar Wright ultimately bailed, but it still only happened because he championed it for as long as he did. So this goes on to my ever-growing list of comic books that should be movies, but probably never will be, taking up residence next to Transmetropolitan, Spider-Man 2099, and Far West. The Irredeemable Shag from the Fire and Water podcast cried about the numbering system, and he gets his wish. The episode numbers will now coincide with the issue numbers. Shag also said, You mentioned Rachel Pollock closed out the Doom Patrol series. She didn't close it out, she buried it. Her run was a poor imitation of Morrison's run and should never have been allowed to happen. They should have ended the book or taken it in another direction. He talked about Robot Man's redesigned suit and then mentioned, I think Captain Comet's angst came into play during the Secret Society of Supervillains issues. They might have been trying to get some of the heat from the mutant craze. They were always very angsty, since Captain Comet was a mutant himself. That's just a guess. Jeff Nettleton left a lengthy comment, including what could be a response to Shag's previous statement. Jeff said, X-Men wasn't that huge when the new Doom Patrol debuted. It was a cult book, but was still about a year or two from being THE book. Byrne had just come on board, and the series didn't really take off in popularity until Byrne had been around for a while, particularly as they started to get into the heart of the Dark Phoenix storyline. Really, 1979 was the year of the X-Men, not 77. That's not to say, though, that Kupperberg wasn't a fan and wanted to bring that sensibility to DC. It was certainly a factor in the 80s Doom Patrol while Kupperberg was writing. Uh, Jeff mentioned that Eddie Vedder sounded like the lead singer from the Dead Kennedys on the other song, Do the Evolution. I can sort of hear that. It doesn't sound like a lot of Pearl Jam's other hits. Uh, Jeff also suggested that the Midwestern University and Captain Comet's story is the University of Illinois. Some of my very best friends went to U of I, and while they're all pretty weird, none of them are mutants. Ange from, well, you just heard him. He was on this episode. Ange said, I have been with the patrol since the showcase Kupperberg Staten issues. That was the first book I remember seeing a house ad for and actively looking for on the spinner rack. Man, I am dating myself. <laughs> Interesting choice of words there, because Ange later on says, There is something icky about Chief's romance with Irani. I think when he meets her, she looks like she is a preteen. She would definitely fail the formula, I am told, is the way to figure out if a woman is too young for a man to date. Unfortunately, Ange got the formula wrong and presented it as the man's age divided by 2 minus 7. If I applied that standard to myself, I could date a 10-year-old. Well, one of my friends is a lawyer and a U of I graduate like Jeff. And an extended relative works for the FBI. And they both say, no, I can't date a 10-year-old. 
Of course, Ainge corrected his statement later in the thread, clarifying that the formula is half the man's age plus seven. Jeff said the original version was the Jerry Lee Lewis formula. Which brings me to an important point that my lawyer, friend, and special agent in charge asked me to convey. Regardless of any mathematical formula you use to justify dating someone older or younger than yourself, the only real number that matters is the age of consent. Look that up. How many of you thought we'd be having this discussion when you started listening to this podcast two hours ago? Angie goes on talking about how great John Byrne's art was and how the Kupperberg run on Doom Patrol felt too normal, that the DP was best when they were weird. He also says the panel where is Power Girl fighting Reactron brought home the fact that Supergirl was gone in this universe. There was a finality to that panel. I think it's a little similar to all the post-crisis depictions of the Justice League of America fighting Starro with Black Canary in place of Wonder Woman. Of course, they were both still around, but still. Uh, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I first met the Doom Patrol in the pages of New Teen Titans number 15, the first issue of the title I picked up, right as Wolfman and Perez were finally avenging the team. So I've always had a fondness for the original team, even though they were dead when I met them. I agree with both Ryan and Doug, the Doom Patrol has always felt like an even more dysfunctional version of the Fantastic Four, and that Ben Grimm and Cliff Steele are practically the same character. I so wanted to check out the Kupperberg Lytle series, but I didn't have regular access to a comic book shop at the time, and by the time I did, Eric Larson was the penciler, perhaps the most night and day switch in comics history. Oh, how quickly we forget, Chris. Didn't we talk about Alan Davis getting replaced by Todd McFarlane after one issue of Batman Year Two? Uh, about Captain Comet, Chris said, I appreciate his place in DC history, but I've never had much of a connection to him. I think part of the problem is the lack of reprints. I did love his appearance in Robinson and Smith's Golden Age. Again, half of you mentioned the Golden Age miniseries. I need to read that again. Uh, the Golden Age series is unabashedly mined from Roy's All-Star Squadron series, and since his portions of the title can be seen as a spin-off of that title, that may have goosed Robinson in choosing to use Adam Blake to wrap things up and point toward the burgeoning Silver Age. Jeff R. says, I'm a bit surprised at how low a profile Steve Dayton, Mento, has in this story, since due to his active presence in the New Teen Titans, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Swamp Thing, he'd likely have been the Doom Patroller readers would have been most familiar with. But no, not on the cover, and if he was in the story at all, it was a blink-and-you'll-miss-it thing. Yeah, I think Mento and Gar are like in two panels in the entire book didn't make enough impression for you to bother trying to cast him for a filmed version. I did actually come up with an actor for Mento, but I didn't include it on the site or in the talk because, well, as you pointed out, the character wasn't really in the story. My first pick for Mento was actually Matt Smith from Doctor Who, but Diablo Frank talked me out of that one, and I went with someone older and blander, like Tate Donovan type or something like that. I don't remember now. And to Jeff's last question, any idea why the story was so determined to erase Dayton and the Doom Patrol's new Titans connections? I do not know. I'm frankly surprised Gar Logan was so downplayed in the story given how popular New Teen Titans was, and the fact that he went from Doom Patrol to Beast Boy on the New Teen Titans. But no, no idea why Kupperberg ignored Steve Dayton so much. And the last comment comes from Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl. I love the Doom Patrol. My favorite version is the original. They were such weirdos in a clean-looking world. The Giffen-Clark version was superb, too. Heck, I've enjoyed every run to some extent. Well, if you ignore the Arcudi-Huat thing. 
Martin made some other casting suggestions for a Doom Patrol movie, including Alfred Molina as the chief. I love that choice. And Gemma Arterton as Rita, which I'm totally fine with because Gemma Arterton looks great. Uh, Martin said he liked Captain Comet based on the name and look alone. He had white pants. And how many heroes actually have brown hair? Not too keen on the idea of him as a whiner, though. Good looks, immense power. Who the heck is going to be repulsed by him? So, so Smallville. It's about as convincing as the idea of Rita Farr was a freak rather than a gorgeous Hollywood star who saved money on stepladders. And finally, the show got a new iTunes review a couple of weeks ago. Uh, forgive me for probably screwing up the reviewer's name. It's Jaloho or Jaloho. It's a five-star review titled A Pleasant Surprise, and it says, I read comics. I like some of them, but I love DC's characters because of their history and the feeling of legacy they have, even in this New 52 era, which I thought would never happen. When I was much younger in the 80s, books like The Brave and the Bold, Crisis on Infinite Earths, DC Comics Presents, and of course Secret Origins were my high holy texts. Not just because most of them were exciting reads, but because they introduced me to all corners of the DCU, from the caveman days of Anthro to the mind-bending adventures of the Legion of Superheroes. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who loves and appreciates that part of the universe, so I'm thankful for this podcast that celebrates and educates where all these stories started and the significance they still continue to hold today when the multimedia seems to overshadow where all the supermania started. The four-color monthlies where the only limit was imagination. Good work. Well, thank you very much for that review. Uh, thank you, everybody, who wrote in or promoted the show on Facebook, Twitter, any other social media. Thank you, Dr. Ange and Michael Bailey, for appearing on this episode of Secret Origins. Michael is going to come back next episode, and I really want to get Ange back when I cover some of the Legion Origins, because if I'm reading my new health insurance policy correctly, if I get Ange on three podcast episodes, he has to give me a free physical, so... Win-win, I think. That's all for now. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. No!
and elements are trademarks of DC Comics. Copyright 2011. All rights reserved.